Section 19 of Wildlife on a Norfolk Estuary by Arthur Henry Patterson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. East Coast Notes, Chapter 1 Some Bird Notes, Part 1 Arrival of Swifts. The annual arrival of the noisy swift is always, to me, one of the delights of sunny springtime, and under favourable conditions, so regular is it in its movements, that I look for its appearance on the 12th or 13th of May, although I have noted its advent being delayed as late as the 17th of the month. The May of 1905 was an unusually cold one, and I did not see any swifts until the 19th, when two or three pairs were to be seen in wild and noisy flight, circling around the old high mill, now demolished. They could not have been very happy, for food must have been exceedingly scant. On May the 18th of the same year, I received a letter from a gentleman living in the county, whose son wrote him the previous day from Worthing, as follows. On Friday morning, 12th of May, at 3.30am, I saw hundreds of swifts coming in great bunches from the sea, very high up, and going north. I was at the top of a down, Asprey Ring, 600 feet up, and they passed very high overhead swarms altogether in great flocks and lasted three quarters of an hour till it got quite light and then i did not see any more it is rather strange that we did not receive our local contingent until the nineteenth on as recorded in my notebook a cold bleak day with a strong northerly wind and masses of damp, rugged clouds. They left us the same night, and three of them reappeared on the 23rd towards the evening. Had they returned temporarily to a warmer clime? A Mr. Stagg who resides near the quay, in a house under whose eaves swifts have nested for many years, informed me that one bird visited him on the 13th, but disappeared again, and then none were seen until the 19th, probably part of the party that came to the old mill. I was very much interested in the behaviour of the mill swifts, which, fortunately, had reared their young ones and seen them safely a wing, before the mill had been so far demolished as to lay bare their particular nesting places. I was exceedingly anxious to note the appearance of the mill swifts in the spring of 1906. May the 7th and 8th were very fine warm days, and probably tempted by these conditions, some swifts arrived on the 9th. That afternoon, three pairs came in, and in a very excited state, flew for hours around the spot where the mill had been, at a height corresponding with their old nesting quarters. 
even the tall willows around which they used to catch moths had vanished while added to these disappointments a bleak northeast wind set in on that day so that they had neither food nor shelter i saw no more of them after the night of the ninth for some days but about twenty were flying around again in very close formation screaming and excited on the evening of the twenty-eighth after which date they seemed to have betaken themselves to other quarters having found it useless to look for their old habitation and being scared by the noise of the workmen building new houses on the spot and the host of children at play in the old mill yard my earliest date of the arrival of the swift is may the fourth in eighteen ninety one the latest on which i have seen it being september the twenty seventh again eighteen ninety one swallows and butterflies in october nineteen o five i wrote to the eastern daily press as follows sir of course the swallows mostly are gone and those few weaklings latest hatched of the summer broods that furtively and with melancholy quietude hawk for the equally miserable flies which are now basking on the sunnier sides of our houses when there happens to be a little sunshine will soon take their departure to be missed less perhaps than they were noticed in the jolly springtime i want to know this of the swallows has any reader observed definitely and with assurance any swallow house martin or sand martin deliberately hunt down and devour either a butterfly of any colour white or otherwise or a crane fly tipula that parent of the unpopular and destructive grub known as leather jacket when i was a small boy employed at a little chandlery shop i during one of those unaccountably magnanimous fits which sometimes take possession of young urchins caught a wretched garden white butterfly that was beating itself against the window panes wondering whatever kept it from the bright sunshine outside i tenderly brought it to the door so unlike the ordinary boy forsooth and told it to fly away and be gone it had not reached the sill of the bedroom window ere a passing martin dashed up behind it crumpled it up like a wisp of tissue paper and swallowed it in a moment has any reader ever seen anything like it signed john nolittle replies were soon forthcoming two or three of which were as follow sir in reply to john nolittle i when a boy helping to build a haystack used to catch a moth and throw it up as high as i could it would then expand its wings and a swallow would come and seize its body while its wings would come fluttering down 
I did this so many times that the birds would come within a few inches of my hand and catch the insects almost before they could get upon the wing, so I did not always observe the wings falling. I have often since set a butterfly free in the presence of swallows in order to observe how cleverly they separate the sapid body from the wings, but it is not always done. Yours, etc., C.B. Sir, I have once, and only once, seen any member of the Hirundini hunt a butterfly on the wing, and the occasion I refer to happened on a bright summer's day, when I witnessed a swallow, high up in the air, secure with unerring aim, a white butterfly, which I presume it swallowed. Apropos of butterflies entering into the menu of our insectivorous birds, I would like to record the following incident that came under my observation a few Sundays ago. On some wire netting surrounding a tennis court was seated a pair of spotted flycatchers with three young ones, the latter being initiated by their parents with the aid of many practical demonstrations into the science and art of catching insects on the wing. Suddenly there appeared on the far side of the court a white butterfly, and my interest was further aroused by the thought of what the fate of that butterfly would be should he inadvertently come across to where the birds were sitting. I had but a short time to wait. The butterfly came in a zigzag path across the lawn, and when, within fifteen feet of the railings, one of the young flycatchers made a stoop at it. At first I thought he was going to be successful, but after vainly following the butterfly for several turns, he gave up the chase in despair and returned to his resting place. Without a moment's further delay, one of the old birds flew at it and secured it in its first flight. Not for long, however, did she retain this much coveted bonne bouche, for in her return flight to the wire, the butterfly escaped from between her mandibles and flew away, apparently uninjured. So great seemed the indignation and chagrin of the parent bird at the loss of prestige she had thus sustained in the eyes of her pupils, owing entirely to her own clumsiness, that she made no further effort to recapture the insect. Signed, S. H. L. Sir, often have I seen butterflies flying amongst swallows, and never have I seen one attacked till this year. One day this summer, as I was driving, I saw a small coloured butterfly, probably a tortoiseshell, flying in front of my house, and I was surprised to see a swallow stoop at it and devour it. It looked far too large a mouthful, but I saw no wings fall to the ground. 
i have spoken of this fact as a new experience so if it be any help to john nolittle and if you think fit to print it well and good signed t d c sir i do not think john nolittle could have been serious in questioning the facts of swallows taking butterflies and moths when a boy i have frequently spent many minutes catching large moths of a kind we called kittiwakes from the swathes of meadow hay and throwing them up for the swallows signed j p a writer in the countryside in november nineteen o five made mention of the fact when working on a building at kessingland near lowestoft he had excellent opportunities of watching swallows feeding their young with daddy longlegs they happened to drop some which were picked up and examined it is just possible from the situation referred to that the swallows may have been house martins but the fact that any of the hirundini will admit the tipula into their bill of fare is interesting to me for i had long watched this species when insect hunting specially to see if this insect was captured but could never really satisfy myself that such was the case mistaken hawks various species of the smaller hawks occasionally put in an appearance during the autumnal migration coming over with the various little travellers from the other side they invariably arrive hungry and eager for a meal in the seventies and eighties it was no unusual occurrence for kestrels and merlins to dash into clap nets attracted thither by the struggling decoy bird fast on the trigger in most cases the poor thing was killed instantly but the hawk never escaped for the angry bird-catcher would at once pull over the nets hoping in vain to save his decoy and a lively time followed in clearing the struggling screaming hawk from the thin airy meshes i have had several captives brought me at different times caught in this manner one day a bird-catcher was laid on the sand-dunes for linnets and other small song-birds one of his cages was dome-shaped the wires converging at the top making it very much the shape of an old-fashioned crab-pot a merlin suddenly dashed down at the bird in this cage striking it through the wires and killing it instantly it attempted to rise with its prey but its foot had slipped upwards to the more contracted part of the cage it managed however to flounder along some little distance before the bird-catcher could run up and secure it a hawk was seen by a friend of mine chasing a small bunch of starlings which had behaved in a somewhat impudent manner to the common enemy presently it made a dash at one seized it 
and flew to an adjoining bank in order to settle matters with it. By some stroke of luck, the starling managed to free itself, dashed away across the river, and crouched in a crevice of a mill sluice, where it remained fully half an hour. The pursuer patiently waited nearby all that time, hoping for it to emerge, but he went away in the end disappointed. The starling shortly afterwards left his hiding place, little the worse for his escapade, but probably a sadder and a wiser bird. In the summer of 1899, a large hawk, doubtless a young peregrine, was seen winging its way over Braden, when suddenly it dashed at a curlew, which, seeing the bird of prey stoop, squatted low on the mudflat and held up its long mandibles as if preparing to receive the foe a manoeuvre that seemed to have the effect of intimidating the enemy. The hawk wheeled round once or twice, as if inclined to make another trial. But seeing my friend, it thought the better of it and departed, much to the relief of the poor frightened curlew. I do not think the soft-tipped, pliable bill of the curlew would have been much protection to it, had the bird of prey really meant business. In one of the corridors of Norwich Castle Museum, a stuffed snipe, raising its soft beak to repel the onslaught of a hungry merlin, has been made to do this in a most tragic manner. The skin of the hawk, having been bored by the taxidermist, in order to allow the snipe's bill to be thrust in among the toe composing the body of the uppermost bird. Some years ago, a Braden smelter observed a peregrine near the narrows, dash at a flock of widgeon that were feeding there. Presently the bird of prey swooped down on a fine old cockbird, which he had singled out as the startled fowl took to wing. He struck the bird, breaking its neck, and had twisted round again in his flight, and seized it ere it fell into the water. The Bradener ran up the bank, dancing and capering like one demented, and he so scared the falcon that he dropped his booty, on which the man jumped into his boat and quickly retrieved it. Some years ago, a gunner named Crowther was out shooting. He fired at a coot, wounding it, when it was attacked by a hungry hooded crow. The crow, in turn, was struck at by a peregrine, which in turn fell to Crowther's gun. Verily, a round of onslaughts. The Starling the starling is a great favourite of mine. It always appears to be merry, no matter how unpleasant the weather, and it has few idle moments. It is the first bird the Bradenside Rambler puts up off the rafts which lie moored at the town end of the estuary, whether it is hunting in summer with the meadow pipits for insects sunning themselves above, 
or small crustaceans pottering about on the heaps of rack that the tide has floated to the ends of the huge balks, or in winter in waiting on the hooded crows for fragments of carrion overlooked by them. Fond of the company of its fellows, it is ever ready to dispute with its friends on either side of it for possession of a dainty morsel. I have seen a dozen of them that one might have covered with a handkerchief, all industriously picking up maggots from some dead animal on a refuse heap, when, even in the midst of plenty, they must needs stop at intervals to quarrel, individuals jumping quite off the ground like fighting cocks in passing anger, sparring in the air at each other, and then as quickly desisting, begin picking up their prey with an eagerness that suggested a suspicion of arrears of gleaning to be done and lost time to be made up. On the mudflats in autumn, when Corypheum, Longicorni, and Garamide, and other small crustaceans are eagerly sought, those petty disputations are not noticeable and the flocks scatter more in hunting. The fat, oily larvae of the cockchafer, Melolontha vulgaris, are favourite titbits with the starlings. I have seen patches of grass in the St George's Park, riddled with holes made by the conical bill of the starling when searching for them. A spot was shown to me by the park keeper on November the 7th, 1906, on which the grass grew thin and weakly. It was a favourite haunt of the cockchafer during the two or three weeks in July, when they were most in evidence. Here the starlings would come at certain times, as if they knew where to find them by instinct, as my friend remarked and without ado they would drive their bills deep into the soil and with a circular movement worm out the fat grub and instantly devour it on may the twenty seventh nineteen o five i observed some starlings hovering over braden like gulls continually dipping and snatching up a small fly probably actora that had perished by myriads. I had no doubt that the heavy, unsettled weather of the two previous days had caused these flies to fall into the water. Few novices at the gun can resist a shot at a parcel of starlings, and most local gunners of my acquaintance seldom let an opportunity slip of firing into a passing flock. With us, the starlings are usually wary and suspicious, but, as if knowing that they are comparatively safe when dodging in and out among the legs of cattle grazing on the marshes, it is seldom that a shot can be made at them. Consequently, one can get very close to them and can see them snapping up the insects, hypoderma lineatum and other tormenting species, for which good officers, the patient animals, seem sensibly grateful. 
if we could but persuade the starling to resist the temptations offered in autumn by ripening cherries and mulberries i do not think the gardener would have much cause to raise a hand against this extremely useful little bird its occasional consorting with the smaller gulls and its mimicry of their methods when fishing at the entrance of Braden always interests me fond as is the starling of shrimps and the like which i have often observed is snatched from the shrimp nets hanging from the boat's mast to dry i am all but certain that it is the half floating half swimming idotea linearis that long-bodied long antennae crustacean which it stoops to snatch at this crustacean is exceedingly numerous in the finer months of the year a starling was one day seen by a friend of mine an excellent observer to dart gull-like at some object on the surface of the river and rising again with the tips of its wings and toes only wetted holding between its mandibles a struggling fish one of the three-inch herring fry which is often most abundant in local waters in the month of august that all our local starlings do not move south on the approach of winter is certain a particular individual with a gammy leg for two years past at every season of the year has frequented the st george's park and has attracted attention by his infirmities he seems to be a confirmed bachelor for so far domestic duties have not been undertaken by him i observed starlings in small flocks on the evening of july the twelfth nineteen o six flying to the fritton reed beds a rather early resorting thither to roost for the night the terdiadi and their food the market gardeners in the villages around yarmouth are for ever crying out against the supposed ravages among strawberries and other fruit of the common thrush the blackbird and others of that ilk in season and out of season they are continually shooting these birds in the summer days because of their alleged depredations in winter because of their remembrance of them and for the sake of the few pence big bunches of these birds will realize in the saturday's market it was a fortunate circumstance for the birds that in june 1897 a scourge of fruit-loving beetles harpalus ruficornis infested the strawberry beds in certain villages lying north of the town for a time it led to some consideration being shown to the terdiadi when it had been pointed out that they might have been useful in the thinning out of the pest had they not been so ruthlessly killed some of the correspondence which appeared on the subject in the norfolk papers fills some pages in my notebooks extracts from which may not be uninteresting the long-continued warm dry weather 
which characterised the early summer of 1897, caused great inconvenience to the various birds composing the thrush genus in the matter of food procuration. Worms, for instance, went deep into the earth for moisture, and snails, slugs and the like left their usual haunts and sought more promising places. They foregathered in the strawberry gardens, finding moisture and palatable food in the ripe, luscious fruit sheltered by the broad, trifoliate leaves. To these places the thrushes and blackbirds naturally repaired, and, of course, the gardeners seeing them there, and also noticing the holes bored in the ripest and biggest of their fruit, unthinkingly decided that the coming of the birds and the spoliation of their strawberries were more than a coincidence. So they began shooting every bird that they could get in a line with their gun barrels, branches being stuck up in the beds and festooned with dead birds to act as a warning to living ones. I saw many of these poor victims in all stages of decomposition, some dry and hollowed out by the larvae of the blowflies, others alive with them, and some scarcely cold from recent massacre. In an article in the Eastern Daily Press, I protested in strong terms against this slaughter. One writer remarked, the blackbird does little injury to the strawberries, and the song-thrush none. The missile-thrush can do his share of the gathering. The worst bird the gardener has to contend with is the starling. The old birds bring their families to the strawberry plots, and when once these young rascals have obtained a taste of the delicious fruit, nothing will stop them but death. I have seen them alight within a few yards of the gunner, before the smoke has cleared away from some departed relative just fallen dead under their very eyes, and begin probing every ripe berry that lies in their way. The poor little thrush, with no thought of danger, flies up at the gardener's approach, and who, enraged at the sight of his mutilated fruit, shoots the bird that just before had been working hard at the destruction of some snail. Signed, L. F. H. P. wrote as follows. Sir, I read with interest the article in your issue of today upon the failure of the strawberry crop at Hemsby, and I hope by its publication that horticulturalists will be on the alert to adopt rapid means for the extermination of this destructive insect, commonly known as the garden weevil. It not only attacks strawberries, but other fruits and garden crops during the period of its existence. Various remedies are recommended for the trapping of the pest, and where carried out in time, might prove effectual, but my opinion is that where the insects have got the upper hand, as in the case quoted, 
the best way would be to fork all around and between the plants leaving the surface quite rough and giving a good dressing of gas lime this of course would destroy the plants and necessitate the land being idle for some considerable time but surely this is better than allowing the plants to remain with prospects of worse results next year i quite agree with your contributor that the gardeners have much to blame themselves for in destroying the natural enemies of this and other insect pests if a thrush blackbird or starling takes a few berries what is that compared to the destruction of the whole crop by insects which cannot be kept off by scaring as birds can during the time the fruit is ripening one keen observer of bird life and a large grower of strawberries resenting the imputation made by a contributor to the correspondence that the thrushes and blackbirds despoiled his cherry trees remarked song thrushes will not eat cherries and the blackbird's weak nerves will not allow him to do much depredation cherries are tackled as a rule by starlings jays and missile thrushes we can all manage to keep birds from our fruit if we wish without shooting them if the missile thrush sneaks a few cherries his beautiful song in the bleak days of february will amply repay any but a tyrant for the little damage done in the summer months the song thrush will not hurt strawberries but the wariness of the blackbird stays his beak from prying into the interior of much fruit and just consider what good these birds do for us in clearing away worse foes to the fruit such as snail slug beetle and company bob redbreast and the white-throat like currants the former take some shooting to frighten he and the other do good in clearing off countless caterpillars another correspondent referring to the insect pest stated that he had sunk in the ground a number of large jam jars containing lemon water and in this way caught beetles by hundreds writing upon the food of birds of the thrush family a correspondent in the field november 1906 stated i have more than once seen one of the large black slugs arion ata eaten by a thrush once by a blackbird and once or twice by red wings whilst the first bird i ever remember to have seen eating this not very inviting looking creature was a rock pipit during a snowstorm and i watched it consume about half of the slug before i drove it off to see what the heavy object was it was dragging about i have frequently watched blackbirds and thrushes eat the common little white field slug limax agrestis upon the lawn and occasionally seen red wings and field fares but all of them seem to prefer worms and shell snails when they can get them the crop of a red wing shot in february 
was found to contain earwigs, spiders, the remains of beetles, and some small helix shells, and the stomach of a field fare, killed at the same time, was full of hawthorn berries. In times of extreme severity, the more frugivorous field fare is generally in plump condition, when its more omnivorous cousin is a weakly bunch of bones and feathers. End of section 19